Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. We are here for a good spirited debate with my new buddy, Logan Motoshami. I'd read that. I wasn't familiar with your stuff, Logan, but you create a lot of content on the real estate market, some really in-depth analysis. So uh, just to start off, can you kind of tell my audience what you do? I'm the lead analyst for Housing Wire, and basically what we do is we track housing data weekly, um, new listings, active listings, uh, pending sales, 10-year uh, yield purchase applications. So we've created a model with Altos, uh, Mike Simonson, who's the president there, and we just provide uh, housing economic data work, also tracking the economic cycle itself. That's something personally I do on my own. Okay, cool. And kind of our back and forth here, our debate is uh, whether or not housing prices will go up or down adjusted for inflation in 2024. Is that fair? That's fair. Also, that's part of my forecast for 2024 is actually uh, negative prices if you adjust it to inflation. So if we're, if we're talking what about are we that, debating, Logan. <laughs> well, I thought it was a housing bubble 2.0. No, I text you on Twitter. I said, if I, I said, if you believe that housing prices adjusted for inflation will go up in 2024, let's debate. Now, I think I still think we can go back and forth here and it will be very yeah. valuable for the audience. But it sounds yeah. like we might be on the same page there. My, my nominal home price gain for the year, 12 months average is 2.3 percent. So it's not if so real, probably negative. Yeah, real is uh, unless something drastic happens, uh, we're going to be slightly negative on a real adjusted basis, which is probably yeah. lower than a lot of people out there, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree that what's interesting about home prices going down. Obviously, you know this is the the housing market really doesn't crash like the stock market. Like it's not going to go down by fifty uh, percent in three months. Uh, it just gradually grinds down lower. I mean, what we saw during 2009 to 2012 is I think prices went down in real terms by maybe, what, 10, 15% uh, right off the bat. And they kind of just slowly went down further and further and further until they bottomed out in 2012. Nominal home prices, I would say, declined about 28% on that in level. One year? Uh, no, just the whole uh, 2008 to 2011 period. Yeah, um, yeah. So it, it it was it was an abnormal period. It was also a historically abnormal uh, inventory period. So I yeah. think for for your viewers, um, we always have this new listings data that we bring out every single week. Uh, the last three years combined, average has been between thirty thousand and ninety k. Uh, back then, a new listings data per week was running at two hundred fifty to four hundred thousand per week. So it was a historically abnormal period in that sense, but also. We had four years of credit stress being built up in the housing market. Then the 2008 recession happened. So you had a about a five to six year window of distressed credit and distressed inventory and then inventory escalating uh, out of control. Actually, before the recession happened, I think a lot of people don't know this, but uh, active inventory peaked in 2007 mm. uh, and then the recession happened in 2008. So that period was very abnormal. Uh, on the housing side, but also the credit explosion in housing demand was very abnormal from 2002 to 2005. Right, right. Yeah. And there were some other things that were uh, unique, I think, uh, with 2008 relative to maybe something like 2001 or 1990. Yes, the, the, the credit market was, um, credit availability index actually exploded higher up in 2005 and six, and then it collapsed. So the abnormal thing is inventory actually blew up 
before the recession happened because the credit markets were blowing up, which I always say that back then it was actually pretty easy to read. Literally, people were filing for foreclosures and bankruptcies, five, six, seven, eight, inventory skyrocketed. Then the job loss recession happened, and then the credit markets broke, and Freddie and Fannie had to be taken to conservatorship. A lot of lenders went out of business. Uh, so much different backdrop now just because I don't fundamentally believe the U.S. could ever have a sales credit boom ever. Uh, we just don't have that kind of demographics. No, we don't have that kind of credit market anymore. Yeah, I think one thing that's going to be interesting about the conversation is how we look at things from two completely separate angles. So you're looking at things, uh, I would say, at a micro level with the housing market, which is understandable. That's what you do. And I look at things more from a standpoint of macroeconomics and the global monetary system. So when I was referring to uh, things were different in 2008 relative to maybe 2001 or 1990s, I was talking about the monetary system and the monetary system being functionally. Well, everything was void. Yeah, definitely. What, what happened in 2008 really wasn't uh, about real estate. It was more so about a loss of confidence and uh, a lack of collateral. And uh, those are, I'll get into it, but those yeah. are uh, setups uh, that we see playing out right now uh, to an extreme, uh, even yeah, more I think so that, than 2008. I think people forget the uh, capital leverage rules were changed in uh, 2004. So it allowed mm -hmm. companies to leverage up 40 to one. I call it an, an economic weapon of mass destruction. And uh, it, it allowed leverage credit to get into the housing market itself, but it tied it to Wall Street. And then you have derivatives. You, you had a lot of issues back then. Uh, the system wasn't working. Uh, and, and the response we had wasn't very efficient either. So it just allowed this three-year period to kind of go uh, unchecked really to a degree. And that's why the housing market disproportionately got uh, hit harder on the consumer side. Uh, and then yeah, but, was, but, but to be clear, it wasn't really a housing crisis. It was a financial crisis. So you got to ask yourself, why was it a financial crisis? Because if we have a financial crisis in 2024, uh, it will most likely impact housing regardless of the inventories. Well, I think the one difference with housing now is that the qualified mortgage law in 2010 uh, changed the landscapes for housing economics. It does not allow the housing market for primary resident uh, homeowners to kind of leverage up anymore, which means that you really can't have mortgage demand escalate out of control. Uh, uh, if you look at, for example, the purchase application data, it never even got to 2002 levels. We just don't have that kind of credit market to allow sales to boom. And I, I think that's a good thing. That's been a big part of my work in the previous decade, that we should never ease lending standards in America. Because when it comes down to it, when when if a recession happens, our credit markets and housing look a lot different than uh, other credit markets in the economy. They do. They do. And the, let, let's get into that. So uh, what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is just kind of establish some things that hopefully uh, just some data that I'm, I'm sure we agree on. And then I'll kind of uh, go from there. And then uh, maybe you can give me your view and we can kind of go back and forth here. So uh, initially, I, th I think we've got to realize, let's see here, that I don't even need a chart for this, but the prices adjusted for inflation are at all time highs. Uh, they've come down uh, recently in many markets, but uh uh, most markets, they're even higher than they were in 2006. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. The, yeah. the home values have actually exceeded, or how I call it, savagely unhealthy uh, yeah. <laughs> starting for the end of uh, 2020. Um, hence why uh, myself and maybe a few other were 
team higher rates in 2021 and in 2022. Yeah. Okay. And then the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the price to income uh, ratios are also at all time highs and in fact, way higher uh, than they were in 2006. Is that correct? They are. It's uh, America's a little bit different than other countries. Uh, uh, if you look at home prices and then you take incomes per capita, we're not as expensive as let's say Canada, Australia, or, or a lot of those countries uh, out there, but those countries are kind of tied to short-term rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had a little bit more, actually they had a lot more buying power uh, than the U.S. did. And that's why you see such price uh, differentials with the price to income, price to rent. Uh, yeah, I'm just talking about the United States compared to the United yeah. States. So yeah, like if we look it, at... Uh, the affordability uh, indexes are... Gosh, you show this chart. Do we see this? Logan, can you see this one? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, so this is what I'm talking about. We're at, uh, what, 7.51, something like that. Something like that. In 2006, we we're about 6.8 or something. Okay, so we definitely agree on that. Now... Also, uh, in my view, the way that you got three options, Josh, you want to change the screen, buddy? There we go. Ah, sorry about that. Okay, so we've got three options for the price to income to normalize. Uh, we could have real incomes go up. Uh, we could have home prices come down, or we could have interest rates go down. Therefore, that mortgage payment would be more affordable. And I'd also like to point out, and I'm sure you've done a ton of work on this, uh, that the mortgage payments right now are the least affordable uh, that they've ever been because that's obviously a combination of the price and the interest rate. But would you agree that to get back, if we do get back down to uh, kind of our historic norm there as far as the price to income, those are the three ways we do it? You would need at least 3.6 years of kind of flat Home price growth with mortgage rates getting yeah mortgage rates getting back down to below five percent yeah and incomes going up right yeah Yeah. that that equilibrium has to work together Um, I I don't believe you get mortgage rates down to three percent again anytime soon so that variable is gone you don't get home prices back to twenty twenty levels so that variable is gone so it has to be a, a the three variable factor working together right which unfortunately takes time yeah and it's, it's so it's so the only factor the only variable that we've got there would be real incomes uh, going up over the next three it, four or five years it would it's just the, the one thing different about housing where the medium income is that you know home sales tend to not fall under four million uh after 1996 we, we just have a bigger labor force the dual household income factor in america actually uh, makes housing more affordable just because of the two income. And that's that's one variable that I think doesn't get talked about enough. If you if everyone was single and had to work with a single income, I mean, home sales would be much lower than what they are today. So uh, unless you have a dual household income, those real medium prices to, to, to income levels are extremely difficult. But we have seemed to found a bottom in home sales, in the existing home sales market. And I would argue, people say we're back to great recession lows. This is actually worse than that. This is the lowest home sale levels ever because we have over 157 million people working. But even with six to eight percent mortgage rates, we found kind of a workable bottom on sales. And I think a lot of that just has to do with dual household incomes, cash buyers. There's also investors into the mix. Yeah. But regardless of how many incomes you throw in there, the incomes have to go up uh, in order to 
get the prices or get to the level of prices or prices have to come down, assuming that interest rates stay the same. It is. It just the home sale values uh, or, you know, how many, how much home sales you need, you know, 107 to 120,000 income could actually get you to buy a house that is above a single income household, but a dual household income together can get that kind of median income. And this, I, I say it this way to explain, you know, how do we get near 5 million total home sales last year with rates between six to 8%. That's the, that's the reason right there. We have a lot of dual household income still that if you put their incomes together, they would actually match the median income. Okay. So let's say household incomes need to increase. Uh, in real terms, in order for that delta to go back down to a historic norm. Yes, or you get a lot more, lot more people getting married and having dual incomes. Those are the only way. To, that's the only way it works. Okay. Okay. Cool. So I think we're we we see eye to eye there. Now, um, you would know a lot more about this than I would, but from what I've heard, the inventory levels right now are at all time lows. That, I'm just reading my notes here. Is that correct? <laughs> Here, here's an interesting aspect about that. Our inventory data has actually doubled from the lows. Now, uh, okay. we've the historic act- average, Logan. Using the NAR data, two to two and a half million is the active listings going back. Your mic's going to cut now. So you said two to two and a half million. Yes, two to there two and a half million is where the active inventory would be. Okay. Um, now we're just a little bit above a, of a million. However, our Altos research. Our active inventory, we're about 497,000. That's double than the lows that we saw in March of 2020. We got down to 240,000 uh, single family active listings in March of 20. So we okay. are historically still low, but inventory can actually grow still from here. I know a lot of people believe in the mortgage rate lockdown, but as long as demand stays weak, inventory can accumulate. But getting the NAR data back to Two million to two and a half million. That's going to take a, a lot more work. Okay, uh, and you gave two numbers there. You said one was a million, and then one currently is about four hundred and was it ninety thousand? What, what's the difference between yes, those two numbers? Yes, the, the the National Association of Realtors. What they do is they take all the homes uh, together, and whether they're in pending, we don't. We take the single family active listings raw. Okay. These are the okay. homes. So our our data is a little bit uh, a lot less than the NARs, but our inventory levels have doubled from the lows of March. Oh, and you said they're 490 right 497 now? yes okay so let's call it 500 and then what just so we can compare apples to apples what is the historic norm for that metric uh, the way you guys above, measure above it? a million would be the norm that we had a in million. The previous okay. Decade. okay cool so that's that's pretty much what i thought okay great so then what i want to do is uh okay yeah we'll go into that i think that um one of the things that I'd like to mention before we get into some charts is that uh, the, the mortgage payment is kind of locked in for a lot of people, right? Because they've got that 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Uh, but what I do in a lot of my videos is I look at the other costs of home ownership, which have increased dramatically. So can you kind of give us some other costs? I mean, what I see is insurance. I see maintenance. I see property taxes. Uh, those are the big three, but are, are there others that you would point out uh, that go into home ownership above and beyond a mortgage? I, I always say the housing is the total PITI cost, principal interest taxes and insurance. And you actually have to qualify for that now uh, in it. What what happened with housing is you get a fixed debt payment, your wages rise every year, your mortgage payment versus your income 
is actually a lot less than what people think, just because people are living in their homes longer and longer. So whatever increase you see in taxes and insurance, the people that have lived in their homes for a very long period and have refinanced, they're doing okay on that front. The insurance issue in a lot of places of the US that are tied to, let's say, climate risk, that's becoming a bigger problem than people realize. Because if you can't get home insurance for your house, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to get a loan. You're going to have to buy a home with cash. That is a variable that is different than what everyone has been used to. So I think that needs to be front and center in terms of the X cost of housing that doesn't get included. Uh, but generally, you do qualify for your house with your taxes and insurance uh, before you buy the home. So that that isn't so much of a deal. It's the but current but current property owners, if their property yeah, taxes current. are going up, then that's going to be an additional cost. Or if their yes. homeowner's insurance goes up, to your point, the, that's the new home buyer, on the other hand, it's a lot more difficult, right? Because people don't people just think about the mortgage rate and home prices, but your taxes and insurance have to all be put together. This is one of the reasons why home sales are at record lows for the existing home sales. The total PITI costs for housing is is much higher than what people think. Right, right. But my point there is even for existing homeowners, it's increasing. And therefore, it's, if it increases to a certain level and incomes yeah. don't go up, then they're going to be more incentivized to sell. It, it, it is. The thing is that if you sell your house, majority of all sellers are buyers of homes. So selling that very low housing cost that you have and then moving on to another house that has a very high property tax or a very high insurance advantage, disadvantage, you have a better advantage staying in your home than to try to purchase something. Yeah, but if you can't afford it, Logan, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. If your income isn't going up and you know, you get to a point where you can no longer afford your property taxes or your home insurance, and you've got some equity, you're going to be incentivized to sell and rent or do something else or move to another house that might be more affordable. It, it is. We don't see that stress yet in the data. No, I know. I'm not saying that we do. Yeah. I'm just talking about kind of a, a hypothetical if we go into a recession, as an example. A, a, a recession changes that variable just because if you lose your job, it doesn't matter, or yeah. even if you have a low housing cost, definitely. Yeah, so exactly. that, that to me, the, the one thing that breaks the 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 homeowner is the uh, job loss recession. Um, yeah. So that thing, but in, in general terms, looking at the credit profiles and the cash flow, homeowners just are, are in a better spot than let's say the home buyers right now. And I think that's part yeah. of the turnover issue is that literally people can't qualify to buy another house. So people think of it as a mortgage rate lockdown. I always say it's a the total cost of housing prevents you from moving, yeah. uh, even if you wanted to. So the sell to rent is actually a, a viable theory that people don't talk about because in a lot of places, a, a single family rental unit is actually cheaper than trying to buy a home. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we, we've got very low inventories. I think we pretty much see eye to eye on everything here. Uh, with the low inventories, I know that's a bullish argument, but uh, I want to point out that I think it makes the market more susceptible to downside risk. I mean, I heard you on an interview the other day talking about the fact that due to the very low amount of buyers, there's low liquidity in the market. And we know that low liquidity means that prices can go up or can go down uh, a lot faster. And so if you've got a market, let's just say with 500,000 homes for sale, and let's just say that we do have uh, a job, a job loss recession, to use your words, uh, then if we have 100,000 new units come onto the market, since the price is set at the margin, uh, that's going to put much more downward pressure on homes than if we had, let's say a million 
because if prices are constant, uh, let's say they are, if prices are going down, that tells us that there is an equal amount of demand to supply as it is right now, or else prices would be going straight up, right? So if we add, if we add inventory to a lower number, then that means that's going to put further downward pressure on prices than if the inventory level was at a higher number, which would indicate higher demand. This is where the supply and demand equilibrium discussion gets very interesting. If mortgage rates fall and you're working from a very low level of sales, is it possible to have home sales stay flat and inventory escalate or, or try to get uh, uh, higher? You can have this if you have distressed sellers. This is why we always like to focus on the new listings data, because those distressed sellers will override uh, um, the home buyers out there. Until I see that actually occur, uh, lower rates, more buyers, everything stays stable. Uh, COVID-19, a lot of people thought that, you know, how, did, how does home sales recover with 20 to 30 million people unemployed and 5 million in forbearance? Well, we had 133 million people still working. So the workforce that we have right now, when the next recession happens, will be the highest workforce ever. Home sales are working from the lowest levels ever. So if rates fall during a recession, does that 157 million workforce offset how many distressed sellers? And that to me is going to be the key variable uh, in the equation that you're talking about, because naturally you'll always get, like I always tell people, when we see stress in the housing market, that, those new listings data will go straight vertical again for, for your audience out there. In 2008 to 2011, that thing was running at 250 to 400,000 per week. We're right. still kind of in the 30s. So I think that that argument is is valid once we get to that spot, because I still think you still have a lot of people there ready to buy. It really depends on how low rates go. So I think a lot of people say, well, what if the Fed doesn't cut aggressively or the government response to housing isn't that big? That is a workable premise to allow inventory to start to grow at a higher rate than what people would normally see. Right. But the math involved is pretty straightforward. Like if you've got demand for 500,000 homes and you add uh, an additional 100,000 to a 500,000 supply, uh, that's going to negatively impact prices to a greater degree, assuming that demand doesn't go up than if you had a million homes for sale and demand for a million homes, and then you added 100,000. This is why I, I always like to highlight that inventory has actually doubled for us. Uh, uh, and we've gone from 240 to 500,000. And prices are stable just because demand is stable. This is why when right, demand, demand stays the same, let's just let's yeah. assume that demand stays the same, then prices are going to be more negatively impacted at a low inventory than a high inventory. It would need much more inventory than that. This is why I was I was saying like our inventory levels have doubled already and prices rose in 2023 just because demand stayed stable. It didn't allow the uh, what we call seller stress. The price cut percentages is something that we track weekly. So that price cut percentage will go up. There's your key right there. Uh, every week we track this. Doesn't matter even if demand is rising, if that price cut percentages keeps on increasing, then there, where the supply comes in, there's how you get price cuts. There's how you get price declines. In 2022, the second half of 2022, prices declined, right? Inventory was low. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a factor that supply really outpaced demand. It was the product that was available out there was too expensive. So people had to cut prices. So you can have prices fall 
with low inventory, it does require the price cut percentages to grow at an accelerated level. So don't, don't think that low inventory is the protection all the time. It really depends on what the buyers have available to them and what the sellers have. Since most sellers or buyers, if they can't afford the homes, they need to cut the prices. That's why I always like to stress on the weekly data that you can have prices fall even in low inventory. It depends on what the buyers are dealing with right there. Mortgage rates going from three to 7% change that variable. It, low inventory did not block you in that situation. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Right. But I just, just, just to be clear for the viewer here, we'll take it to an extreme. Let's say that usually we have a million homes for sale and right now we have 10 homes for sale. All right. If we add an additional 10 homes to that supply, that's going to dramatically impact prices. If there's only 10 homes for sale, where if we had a million homes for sale and you add 10, it's not really going to impact prices that much. You can have not that much inventory growth and have prices decline. Yeah, so but, but my point there is the, the lower the inventory levels, if you have the same amount of inventory hit the market, the more susceptible so, so, uh, yeah. so, supply and demand. Absolutely. If your supply increases and demand doesn't, then you're going to get price cuts. That's that's the point is that I, I don't want people to think that low inventory is the, the total protection out there. That's what 2022 should have taught people. So you have to focus on the price cut data weekly to, to tell you that because we had very, very low active listings in the second half of 2022 and prices still fell. Yeah. So then what we have to figure out is we have to figure out what is going to be the driver or what could be the driver uh, of demand staying the same or going lower. And then what could be the driver of more people needing being incentivized to sell. And I think that that's where I would layer over uh, a macro analysis on top of the micro analysis that you guys do on a day to day basis. So uh, what, what I'd like to do there, if you don't mind, is um, let's see, I've got some charts. Uh, first and foremost, I guess for the viewer, you already know this, but if we look at uh, uh, real home prices, uh, they in a lot of markets, they have come down. Now, what's interesting here, and maybe you can shed some light on this, is uh, you would as assume that this would be San Francisco, Seattle, you know, kind of your usual suspects. But I was surprised to see that it was actually Dallas, Phoenix, uh, Denver, at Las Vegas would fall into that same category. Now, overall, United States, it's about flat. It's kind of up here, went down, then it went back up. But what's interesting there are some of the markets that are propping that number up are markets where the long-term fundamentals, I would argue, are uh, not so good, uh, such as New York and Chicago. 
But before moving on, I just wanted to point this out. Is this the same? I mean, I'm, sh- I'm assuming you use the case shiller. Maybe you use something else. We, we, we have our own data lines, but I, I would argue that Dallas uh, uh, home prices escalated out of control during, during COVID. So, oh, they uh, absolutely did. This yeah. is, uh, let me show you Dallas here. Dallas is the, this green line. So we see it went way up here, peaked out in May of 2022, and then it's come down, uh, and then it's gone back up, but now it's starting to roll over. And this is, uh, for the viewers, uh, this is very consistent with the type of chart that you would see in uh, the, the certain stages of, of a bubble. Uh, you see they go way up, they come down, they go back up, and as we can see in a lot of these markets, they're rolling over. Now, to be fair, in a lot of markets, they're not. Uh, in New York, as an example, they're still going up, oddly enough. Uh, but I would argue that from a fundamental standpoint, maybe a demographic standpoint, those are the markets that we should be more concerned about long term. So it's very similar to NVIDIA right now in the S&P 500, where that's pretty much carrying the entire market up. But you've got, uh, instead of NVIDIA this time, it's like pets.com. That's what's taking the whole market up, being New York or Chicago. But uh, go ahead. You want to say something well, there? In America, we have like 108,000 cities. Um, I, the, the areas that escalated out of control, let's say Austin, Phoenix, Dallas, uh, those will always be more susceptible to weakness and demand. And then there's a lot of areas that just, uh, there's just not a lot of active inventory. Like the only reason California prices are holding up is because inventory is not growing much there. And that's partly supply is a function of demand and housing. Like you have to list your homes to buy another one and people just can't afford to really move. So mm-hmm. I think uh, it, the, the demographic issues, let's say California was supposed to be bad for a very long time, but prices even there uh, went up during the, uh, uh, the COVID-19 period. I still think this is back to a supply and demand equilibrium. If we want to talk about Case Shiller and the national indexes, uh, you're going to need to see inventory start to increase in a bigger fashion and you're going to need to see demand flatten or go lower right so i think that takes us that perfectly goes into i think the next topic would be what would be the probabilities of a recession in 2024 or maybe 2025 uh and so i think that takes us straight over to the yield curve uh which i'm sure you're you're very familiar with and so uh you know i would argue that the yield curve has a very uh, high level of predictive power going back to the 1950s, especially when you have a curve inversion like the one that we've seen. And the reason is because uh, the curve inverts because of insider information. Uh, you know, I hang out with a lot of these guys, these hedge fund managers in St. Bart's. I've been fortunate enough to and learn from them. And I realize that when they see storm clouds uh, and they have access to information that we just don't have. They have access to all of these global uh, CEOs. They have Jeff Bezos on speed dial, as an example. And uh, so they get information that we don't have. And if they get information that is risk off, they're going to go and buy the long end of the curve. If the Fed's increasing, then that's going to invert it. Uh, but that's why we have such a high predictive power with that curve and what the bond market tells us through the yields and the pricing. So what, what's your view on the yield curve? Because this would suggest to me that there's a very high probability of recession, which would increase unemployment, that would decrease demand, and that would increase supply bringing prices down. So I have my own six recession red flag model. Um, they all went off uh, combined on August 5th, 2022. But 
with the inverted yield curve, the inverted yield curve and recession models combined together needs residential construction workers to start to fall. And I think what happened was 2022 was the greatest head fake and housing leads to recession because rates impact housing first. Uh, when the 10-year yields kind of peaked at four and a quarter and started to come down, the builders then felt confident enough to sell homes and single-family permits got to go, got to rise. The backlog of homes that needed to be done kept those employment there. So if you wanted to run an inverted yield curve with recession models, you actually uh, highlight the residential construction workers. And you can see why we didn't get a recession in 2023. And if residential construction workers start to fall, it works with the inverted yield curve in the past few recessions. I think there's the missing link to everyone's recession model. Why it didn't happen last year is because the one variable that goes with the inverted yield curve in previous cycles didn't break. And you could say that it's fiscal dominance or anything, but literally single family permits are going. However, with that constant variable in play, the five unit apartment boom is already over. Permits are already falling down there. So to me, if you want to uh, tagline a recession model, you need the 10-year yield to get to 5%, and you need it to hold it there because 8% mortgage rates actually impacted new home sales enough to where the builder's confidence started to come down. Then rates fell again. So I right, think that if, if we're talking about the inverted yield curve, the only reason we didn't see a recession is because the, the labor market that ties itself with the inverted yield curve didn't break last year. Okay, yeah, but that that I don't think that we can say that... Uh, as long as we have some construction jobs that we're not going to go into a recession, especially when you can sit, is that, I don't want to put words in your mouth there. Well, that's what, that's what I was looking for. And, and that actually changed its course in 2023. So that's how I explain because the inverted yield curve is part of the sixth recession red flag, but. Right. That's how you explain it. But I'm talking about looking through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. Yeah, I, I I still need to see I need to see more damage to the housing market to or, or I need to see construction workers start. Once residential construction workers fall, I think everybody falls into line with that. That runs around with every single cycle we have. We need to see the labor market start to break. So my line in the sand is three hundred twenty three thousand on jobless claims, four week moving average. Once we break that, whether residential or not, the recession is on. So that's what that's the highlight of part of my economic. Okay, work. why 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 does unemployment matter? I mean, what, what I'm getting at there is that what really matters is purchasing power, right? Yes. So even if we had a low unemployment rate, if people's purchasing power is decreasing effectively, it's the exact same thing, right? Well, also, if you lose jobs, you're going to have less wages and we have a lot of nominal income. But I'm saying wages. even, but it's all about purchasing power. Even if we had a very low unemployment rate, if purchasing power was declining, uh, then it would be the same as if the unemployment rate goes up because aggregate demand goes down. It is, it's just that n now the... Purchasing power with credit. Um, so many homeowners have very low debt and their wages rose. I mean, what's the hedge against inflation was the 30-year mortgage, right? So if nominal growth, income growth is higher and people have very low household debt costs, this explains why consumption is still holding up. But the way to break that is the labor market, right? You have less people working, less income in the system. I think a lot of people haven't seen a a cycle where nominal income growth is 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 very prevalent. We've always worked with the very low wage growth in the previous decade. Uh, yeah, but what matters is even if we have nominal wage growth, if we have real wage growth declining, then purchasing power is going to decrease and that's going to negatively impact aggregate demand. And as and an example, I'd, I'd give you uh, Japan. I'd give you the UK. I'd give you Germany right now. All of those have very low unemployment rates, 
especially Japan, at 2.5%. All of them have stock markets very near or at all-time highs, yet every single one of them is in a recession. So what, what matters there is even though you have low unemployment, you have decrease in purchasing power impacting aggregate demand, which takes the economy into a recession, creating negative GDP. And if you have negative GDP, lower economic output, then that would put downward pressure on demand and upward pressure on supply in terms of housing. That's that's technically what people would say the soft landing is as the growth rate of inflation falls. Real right, wages. But, that's, but even if we have a soft landing because inventories are so low, if we have a slight increase in those inventories without an increase in demand, then you're going to see even nominal prices come down very dramatically. R- real wages per capita, the DPI data has gotten better as yeah, but it's still negative, and that's I, if I you believe the DPI. And then you focus. Yeah. Then what you got to focus on is things like food. I just did a story the other day on my YouTube channel how the percentage of of cost or expenses that food occupies of the total income is at a 30 year high right now. So people have to prioritize. We've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So even if nominal incomes are increasing, if, that, if food is occupying a larger and larger percentage of those incomes, that means less money that people have to allocate to a mortgage, uh, insurance, um, property taxes, et cetera, uh, which even if you look at the unemployment rate, you say, yeah, it looks great. Well, if people's purchasing power goes down at a certain point, they can do nothing else other than sell their house and try to protect their home equity, even if they have that locked in 30 year fixed rate loan. I, I think that that really is an issue for renters because the renters don't have that fixed cost and that rental inflation keeps on growing on them. This is why we see credit stress with young households. I think that that's a viable that's a viable discussion. We, we, we see credit stress in auto loans and credit cards to renters that actually don't have that kind of income. But it applies I, to everyone with a payment, whether it's a mortgage payment or a rent payment. If your income in terms of purchasing power is going down, you're going to have a much harder time paying that regardless of you're a renter or a homeowner. I, I, I just believe that households that are homeowners, especially those that have lived there, have have a lot more leeway than a renter. And we, this is why we have a divergence in the data from renters who are already showing credit stress. I think this is one of the discussions. But they do have why. more leeway, but if we go into a recession, uh, especially a significant recession that looks like the GFC, then even if you've got a homeowner that's got a little more leeway, at the end of the day, that's not going to matter. They're this still going to be forced to sell. This is why I say that 323,000 jobless claims data is very key because once that but, happens. But, but again, what we've established here, Logan, I want to be clear, is that it's not necessarily about the unemployment rate. It's about the purchasing power. If purchasing power is going down, then it has the exact same impact as unemployment going up. It's all about aggregate demand. And that's still moving along. I mean, uh, it's the, it, the it is, of, it is, but you got to realize, but the reason I point out the UK, uh, Germany, Japan, as an example, let's not forget about China, although they've reported uh, GDP growth, I'd be very suspicious about those numbers. They have had the worst deflation, not disinflation, but deflation that they have had in decades. So usually when you have a huge economy like China that shows outright deflation, and a global monetary system that's debt-based, that means that they are not just headed for a recession, but could be headed for an economic depression. So when you look at what's happening outside of the United States, you have to first and foremost realize that we are an isolated island here. 
every other country is going straight downhill and very, very quickly, right? So then you say, okay, well, can the U.S. avoid this? I mean, to your point, the U.S. might avoid this if construction workers uh, remain in demand or something like that. But I would say, no, that's not possible because the global economy is so interconnected uh, that if these other markets go down, there is no way that that isn't going to negatively impact the United States to a degree to which it will take us into a recession where either unemployment goes up or the purchasing power goes uh, goes down, which would put that same pressure on the homeowner or the renter. And we haven't even started talking about the banking system because the banking system is even more interconnected than the global economy. And you saw this with Silicon Valley Bank. You saw this with First Republic. You saw this with Signature. Let's not forget about Credit Suisse. Right. And more recently, we've got New York Community Bank. So you could sit there and say that, oh, well, this is to this has to do with commercial real estate, which is a huge uh, black swan out there. But uh, I might argue that it could be. But it's also due to what's happening globally. And the only thing that constrains banks balance sheets is perceived risk. So regardless if that risk is going up in China, if it's going up in uh, in Australia, the UK, Germany, etc., that is going to impact the liquidity for the U.S. banks because they are connected to every single other bank in the euro dollar system. And this is even more so why we're seeing such strain on the banking system, which, oh, by the way, has taken the BTFP, which, as you know, is the bailout for the banks, straight from $65 billion, where it was in March of 2023, all the way up to $160 billion, where it is today. That is extreme, extreme stress in the banking system. And if that continues, which the yield curve is predicting that it will, there's no way that that doesn't impact the United States to the degree to which it would not only take us into a recession, but take us into something that more looked like the GFC. So this is, this is the, the credit event theory, right? That, 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 that credit event will actually spiral like a domino with all the banking uh, systems around the world. That's 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 this premise, right? The credit event will will have that domino effect, like it did in two thousand eight. That's what the yield curve is predicting. Yeah. So that that when that happens, we'll we'll be able to see that deterioration in the uh, quality of the banking system and the ability to us uh, to give credit out anymore. And that like we've seen in like we've seen in uh, in in the banks that I mentioned earlier with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, First Republic, Credit Suisse, and then if you look at credit bank credit overall, which I'm sure you you look at daily, you know that it's flat, and that's not good. If it's not going up a trend, whenever we are flattening out, that means that the economy is struggling, and that means that we could already be in a recession or a recession type of environment. Another thing that I'd, I'd point out, if you want to look at the banks, is just simply look at, uh, at M1. I mean, we look at M1. Now, keep in mind, everyone looking at this, this massive spike up is just because they changed the way that they measure M1. Uh, they took a component of M2 and put it into M1. So you, so you can't read anything into this big spike. But from here up, you can read into the spike. And then from here, you see it's headed straight down. So this tells me that the banking system is extremely sick. And not only that, it tells me that the consumer out there has less and less purchasing power because this is a direct measurement of not only currency and circulation, but also savings account balances and checking account balances. And then I'd also like to go over to this chart here, uh, just dovetails on the M1. We look at M2 money supply. 
because we know that the banks create M2 money supply. For the most part, they lend the money into existence. So that's why I'm using this as a proxy for the health of the banking system or their uh, willingness to lend, not just in mortgages, but more so and more importantly, overall in the economy. And you can see this black line that M2 money supply is negative four, right around negative four. It's gone up slightly, but it's still negative. And the last time that we had uh, numbers like this, last time it was negative at all, was the Great Depression in the 1930s. And then prior to that, the last time it was negative was the depression that we had in 20 and 20, 1920 and 21, where the unemployment rate got to levels that exceeded the unemployment rates that we saw during the Great Depression. So I think it's safe to say that the banking system right now is completely risk off. And therefore, in the future, especially if we have a recession or if risk increases, then that's going to negatively impact not just the economy, but going back to the, the main individuals that we're talking about, which are the homeowners and the renters. So does it surprise you that the Fed is still trying to run off its balance sheet and not cut rates? No, because if you understand how the monetary system works, you realize that treasuries are the collateral. So if we want to look at something like that, we can go to, uh, let's see here. This is, uh, no, let's go to, I thought I had it up. Oh, there we go. Okay. So uh, this is a, a example that I used on a video the other day, just to not only show the interconnectivity of the banking system and where I'm going with this is, uh, and this is from my good friend, Jeff Snyder, this diagram is that uh, all the banks that are in the global network, and that would include the U.S. banks, their uh, assets are another bank's liabilities and vice versa. So you have this system where if one or two fail or if risk goes up, that's going to negatively impact the entire system. But getting back to your point with QT, which is a great point, uh, we see that for this, for money velocity to stay at a consistent level, in the global monetary system, it has to have treasuries because a lot of these banks can only borrow if they're repo transactions, which means that they're collateralized. And a lot of these banks don't have the collateral needed, which is a treasury. So they'll have to borrow that as an example from a global dealer bank or that global dealer bank would have to borrow it from like an insurance company if they don't have it. Have it. And this is the process of rehypothecation that we talk about all the time. So what happens when risk goes up in the system, which we can see uh, just clearly right now, it, it means that demand for collateral is going to increase and the willingness to rehypothecate is going to go down, which makes the necessity for that collateral go up even higher. So as the Fed is doing QT, most people would see that as taking liquidity out of the system in the, term, in the form of bank reserves. But in reality, if you understand the system, you see that this could be or likely is putting liquidity back into the system because it gives it more of the collateral that it really needs to function properly. And this takes me to one of my next points, which is if we have a recession or a credit event, a financial crisis in 2024, the Fed is most likely going to do quantitative easing, which is the exact opposite of what they should do because they're starving system for the collateral that it needs even more because risk is increasing. And then what's likely to happen in that event, which would be different from 2020, is that now we're in a more inflationary environment. So the Fed is kind of just a, an innocent bystander. If anything, they're a net negative. 
And then you have the government come in and deficit spend to a significant degree, but that's going to increase inflation. We've seen this before. We've seen how the movie plays out, which is going to force Jerome Powell to go ahead and increase rates. Now, even if that increase in rates doesn't impact the uh, willingness to borrow, right? Mortgage rates go up. Let's say the consumer can just go ahead and shrug it off for whatever reason. What we have to understand is how those in, that increase in rates impacts the global monetary system, right? Because outside of the United States, we've got trillions and trillions of dollars of dollar-denominated debt, right? Well, that dollar-denominated debt is an asset on the balance sheet of a bank in the Eurodollar system. Uh, a debt asset. So if interest rates go up, the value of their assets go down. It's the exact same thing that happened to Silicon Valley Bank. You see, so my point there is if Jerome Powell raises rates because the Fed is trying to bail out the economy, well, at the same time, Fed is starving the system of collateral, but that's increasing rates, increasing the value of the dollar, which is a massive deflationary impulse on the global monetary system, which would obviously bleed over into the United States. So then I, I, I would say you would agree with what the Fed was talking about, that even if they do cut rates, they're still going to do quantitative tightening. I mean, that would be something positive I would in hope that they would. regard. I would hope they would. But if we've seen, you know, kind of their MO, because they really don't fully appreciate uh, what I just said, I would assume that they would go back to quantitative easing, which to like I was saying, would be a net negative. So what they're currently doing is, is the, I mean, you answer the question, that would be more beneficial to the, to the liquidity system if they keep on doing quantitative tightening, right? Yep. Okay, on, on that part, we would agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but, but when you take everything that I've said and you put it all together, I think what you have to do is assess the probabilities Right. Because, you know, there's no certainties. Both of us here are just uh, giving assessments on what we think probabilities are. But I, I think that if all things considered, when we kind of not just look at the micro data with real estate, but then we have to understand that the macro, like we saw during the GFC, can completely and totally overwhelm whatever is happening with the domestic U.S. economy or whatever is happening with the real estate market itself. Right, the mi the macro data can completely overwhelm the micro data. So, regardless of how positive it is with supply and demand, as an example, if we have a global monetary crisis, then that's going to overwhelm everything else. And so, the question becomes: What's the probability of that type of event, the way the monetary system is structured, and based on what the yield curve is telling us? And what the smart money is telling us is the probability of that moving forward is extremely high. So with that theory, the yield curve uninverting, un that isn't a, uh, a, a detriment uh, in your eyes. It still has to be inverted. If for some reason the 10-year yield does go up and we get out of that inversion, is that is that a benefit or a negative? Benefit. Benefit. Okay. Absolutely. I look at it, I, I look at it in the in the other light, the 10-year yield going up real yields being restrictive will eventually impact the economy, even if there wasn't a credit. No, because what happened, yeah, so what you got to understand there is that uh, the long end of the curve especially is a combination of growth and inflation expectations. So let's just assume that we have an uninversion due to a, a bear steepener, which is what you're talking about, where let's say Fed fund stays at 5% roughly, and the 10-year treasury goes from 4.3 up to Let's just call it 6.5, 7%, something like that. Uh, a lot of people would see that as uh, being net negative to the real estate market. I'd actually say as a net positive 
uh, because what that tells me is the smart money is um, is betting that uh, the probability is high that future growth of the economy, real growth, and inflation expectations are going to be higher, not lower. And I've always said that uh, you know I'm a firm believer in the yield curve, but when I will wave the white flag and admit that this time is different is if we have a sustained uninversion of the curve by the long end going up. That's actually a very, very, very good sign. Unfortunately, what we've seen whenever we get an inversion of the curve is an uninversion, but the complete opposite, where we have a bull steepener. And that's the Fed dropping rates, which brings the short end down. Now, the long end comes down as well, but the short end comes down a lot faster. And uh, you could say, great, George, rates are coming down. Now, be careful what you wish for. Because in that environment, if rates are coming down, bank lending is contracting. Money is very, very tight because the economy is going into a recession, if not something worse. So that, that runs into my belief, the higher yields would actually be <clears throat> the economy is still growing. Yeah, so we agree. On, we agree on that one. I think that that's 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 a lot of the contention out there that when people see yields rising, they see that as an initial net negative without the corresponding data actually being impacted. But higher yields typically means that uh, the, the economy is not in contraction mode. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Because along into the curve, again, it's all about growth and inflation expectations. Uh, I mean, I look at that through the lens of the, of the Fisher equation, which is, um, and you can use that a lot of different ways. Basically, you just got nominal rates equal uh, real rates plus inflation. And I always looked at that as, uh, as an investor. And I know that a lot of these guys that I'm fortunate enough to hang out with uh, some hedge fund guys, uh, they kind of see it the same way that they look at the, the nominal rate is, okay, what's my rate of return? And what type of rate of return do I need for it to make sense? And so if they're uh, willing to accept, let's say, a 4.3% rate on a 10-year, that tells you that the, what they believe are the future growth and inflation expectations, it's, it's not 4.3%. <laughs> it's going uh, to be much, much, much lower than that because they need a delta on top for the profit and the risk premium. So if they're willing to accept, let's just say 4%, that means they probably think that future growth and inflation expectations in the uh, in the near term are maybe zero or one percent, which would be you know suggest a recession. So if the if the PCE inflation data was running between two to three percent and yet a ten year yield above four and a half, that would actually be positive for growth. Um, well, r regardless of what the, the the PCE data is or the CPI or you know however you want to measure that, I just simply look at the the what the long end is doing uh, relative to the front end because that pretty much tells you everything that you need to know, and especially for people that are. Um, maybe less sophisticated, you know, people that watch you or maybe watch me, they say, okay, Logan, I get what you're saying. Okay, George, I get what you're saying, but I don't have time to do all this stuff. Uh, so just give me one thing that I can watch. And I always say, okay, no problem. Just look at the two year versus the 10 year. And uh, when you see this, watch that like a hawk. And when you see it uninvert, uh, assuming that it uninverts as a result of the two year treasury going down, uh, that bull steepener, then you know that historically, that's usually when the stuff hits the fan. Uh, but uh, let's just assume that we have the inversion of the curve and it doesn't uninvert the next year. Well, then, uh, you know, the stuff isn't hitting the fan. And uh, then I would have to take my projection for 2024 and move it to 2025. So the two-year yield is really, it hovering around here at 460 is not flagging anything yet. It's if it breaks down a little bit more then the forward markets are telling you something, just like with the Silicon Valley banking 
uh, situation, we saw the two-year-old uh, really head lower in anticipation of a banking crisis event that would impact the economy. That's, yeah. that's the indicator. That, and that's, yeah, and therefore kind of predicting what the Fed is doing. But I mean, you, I think you just made a great point that when people look at the curve, especially some of the experts, quote unquote, on CNBC or Bloomberg or something like that, they'll sit there and say, well, the curve is predicting or giving us a signal as to what the Fed's going to do with interest rates. No, no, no. You're missing the point. <laughs> the signal that the curve is telling you is what the economy is going to do, first and foremost. It's a signal for the economy. And then the Fed is just whatever. That That's that's the sideshow. Yes, I'm trying to teach people how to focus on the two-year yield. It's not the most exciting uh, thing for people in real estate and mortgage. But uh, yeah. to that point, the what happened in 2023 was flagging what the uh, uh, credit event could have done. Uh, and then the Federal Reserve stepped in and then yeah. uh, cleaned that mess And I up. think the point that I'm making with all this macro stuff and mumbo jumbo that I'm going over and the, the banking system, the monetary system, is just to point out that uh, the, the probability of an event that I think we would both agree uh, would negatively impact home prices, maybe even nominal home prices, uh, the probability of that is extremely high. And I, I think that that's very hard for people to see that uh, get so hyper-focused on the micro data uh, as they should, you know, that that's their job. That's what they do. You know, it reminds me a lot of the real estate buddies that I had in 2006 and 2007. I mean, they could tell you everything about the streets and the demographics and the, the you know, FedEx just set up a location here. And, oh, my gosh, this is going to be great. Because it's going to bring in all these people and all the boots on the ground data. They could just recite that. So they're like an encyclopedia. Uh, but then I'd sit there and ask them, or not at the time, but if I would have asked them back then, you know, well, what does the yield curve mean? Or what do you think uh, would happen if, if banks started to seize up and lending decrease? They, they, they wouldn't even have known what you were talking about. And I think uh, one of the main takeaways, hopefully from this conversation, is that people that get super focused on the uh, micro stuff, not saying that, that you don't look at the macro, but the people that do that will say, wait a minute, I need to also consider what's happening, not just with, from a macro standpoint with the United States economy, but even more so the global economy and the global banking system, the monetary system itself. You know, I always say I'm an economic cycle person first a housing person uh, second. Yeah. And and to me, when I look at the two-year yield, I still see a hesitation of it to kind of head lower ahead and the Fed tries to talk it back up whenever it can. So are you in the camp that believes that the Fed is behind the curve in trying to uh, talk back the markets when it wants to do rate cuts? And the two-year yield gets ahead of itself. Like I understand the banking crisis, why the two-year yield went down, um, uh, anticipation of a credit event. But when that credit event occurs, are you in the camp that the two-year yield just heads lower and doesn't care what the Fed does? And then at that point, uh, the Fed would be technically behind the curve during a cur credit event. Yeah. Before they before they realize it, uh, uh, it would be too late. Yeah. I mean, that's usually what's played out. What's interesting is, you know, Gunlock always talks about how the Fed follows the two-year. And if you go and you look at a chart of Fed funds and you look at the two-year, uh, he, he's got a great point where <laughs> usually the two-year starts to go down initially and then the Fed, oh, well, what's the two-year doing? And they start to go down as well. So 
I, I don't know the, how well the future yeah, that would, in the past. That would be a correct assessment. They tend to get a little bit more vocal when the two-year yield gets ahead of what they want. Yeah, yeah, and and so we we've got to look for that as just kind of average Joe uh, investors out there or people who are paying attention uh, to what the risk is doing in the monetary system. We've got to watch that two-year and watch how it's the the interplay, let's say, between the two-year and the ten-year Treasury. It's very, very important. And right now, you know what they're telling us because uh, you know there's so much demand for those ten-year treasuries. And let's not forget that this inversion of the curve is happening when we've got a deluge of supply. Right? We, I mean, the government's running these massive deficits, so we have all these treasuries that are hitting the market. And even with all of the additional supply, the ten-year treasury is still what forty or fifty basis points under the two-year, and it's almost 100 basis points under Fed funds. That tells you how much the global market is risk-off right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we, I think we, we both look at the two-year yield as being that final indicator that it will eventually deviate from what the Fed language would be. And it will go on its own. Yeah, but the Fed will follow it. And usually what you've seen, I mean, if you look at it, I don't know if I've got a chart of Fed funds here, I might. Yeah, here we go. But it, so in, a, in, a, in a credit event they can't control, wouldn't wouldn't that just blow through them? Like they can talk all they want. But they yeah, would, I they, mean, a, a they good example. Be, they would they would be way too late into a, a dealing anything if that credit event occurs. Yeah, and a good example that I would use there, Logan, would be March of 2020. I mean, if you remember back then, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm screwing up the thing here. Okay, if you remember back then. Uh, the Fed was supposed to have a meeting on a Wednesday. I forgot the exact date, but they had this emergency meeting on Sunday because the stuff was just absolutely hitting the fan. And they had rates up around 1%. They started dropping them because we had the repo spike, <coughs> excuse me, in September of 2019, which by the way, was most likely a collateral or at the very least a risk issue. Uh, but they started dropping rates down to, I think it was 1%. And then that Sunday night emergency meeting, they just drop them straight down to 0%. And then they announce that they're going to commit up to a trillion dollars a day in repo. And then they announce that they're basically going to do QE infinity. And most people at the time thought that there was like a quote unquote Fed put. Remember, I'm sure you, you know, that was like the narrative back then, remember? And uh, the market just completely gave them the finger. Uh, the next day, the market was down by like 1,500 points, and it just kept going down and down and down and down and down, regardless of what the Federal Reserve was doing. And that would be a great example of what you just said. So what made the, the, the recovery, what bottomed it out, that's when they announced the CARES Act and the government spending. Uh, but And will they do that again? Most likely. But even if they do, that means that we go into more inflation. That means higher interest rates. And that means that the pressure on the global monetary system increases because of that dollar-denominated debt. So in that light, higher yields would be still beneficial if they do all of that, because the the injection of liquidity in the system will prevent a deflationary event from happening, if if it got to that point. It's 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 very uh, it's a really fun thought experiment because yes initially it could it might not create inflation but it would create anti-deflation in the sense if let's just assume that they're bailing out the banks right uh, but then they come out and they do this uh, next wave of government deficit spending 
because that's kind of their MO, but they do that in an inflationary environment where let's just say, I think we'd have disinflation, but let's just say it's at uh, 1% or still at 2% instead of like negative 2% where it was in Q3 of 2009. Uh, so then they just have this fire hose and they increase velocity, do everything that they did in 2020. So then you have uh, inflation go back up. So it is true that interest rates would go up, not necessarily because of growth, expectations, but more so on the inflation side. And that's the U.S. domestic economy. So then it becomes interesting as to figure out how that would impact the global economy, because that means that interest rates go up. That negatively impacts the global economy, which could create, ironically enough, a massive deflationary pressure that would take the United States back into the next wave of deflation. And you just go through this cycle very similar to what we saw in the 1940s. So when we talk about deflation, we're not actually talking about negative CPI or PC data for, for a long period of time. I mean, I mean, deflation in America after World War II is, is very rare. Um, uh, it, it, well, would be, it, it would be a disinflationary event and then maybe like, you know, it, we, we had deflation for a few months in, in, in 2009. It would be something to that manner. It wouldn't be, well, let's say what China's going through or J Japan's demographics are, are, are really bad and Europe's demographics isn't great. We still have some ability to create inflation here uh, just because the, we, the, the system wouldn't be able to collapse fast enough. Uh, to yeah, I, I think that we would potentially see the type of 2009 deflation that you're referring to, like a real quick, like quarter of negative one, negative two, something like that. But then we would go right back to having the CPI positive, And that's what, you know, increases rates, Powell or whomever is there. Uh, is most likely taking rates higher. But so when I'm talking about deflation, especially global monetary deflation, I'm talking about a contraction of the money supply, which would likely be a, I guess you'd call that a, a, a deflationary bust. So deflationary. more so with asset prices, uh, that that would be very negative for, for home prices. That would be extremely negative for uh, the stock market. Although, you know, the cost of stuff uh, might only go down by 1% or 2%, very similar to what we saw in the GFC. Yes, and the two-year yield would lead that, even with the Fed trying to bark it back up. So that would be the key. Yeah, two-year, two you got, and, and to be clear, the 10-year, if history is a teacher, you know, who knows how this plays out? You just got to look at history and say, okay, it's happened every single time this way, so it's likely to happen this way again. But the, the, when we start seeing risk and risk and risk and risk, and all of a sudden the narrative changes, because it's all about narrative at the end of the day, all about narrative. So the narrative becomes very overwhelming, like we saw in March of 2020. Then you see the 10 year start to drop, but you see that two year start to drop even faster. And so that's what is that, that's that bull steepener that I'm referring to. Then what the Fed does, they say, oh my gosh, look at all this data. We're completely off sides. We've got to drop rates immediately like they did in, in March of 2020, when they should have seen that come by the repo spike, by the way. And so then they drop rates even lower than the two-year treasury, which brings the whole curve down, but it's now slightly steep or, or it's uninverted because the the 10-year is, let's just say, at 2%. Uh, the two-year is at 1% and Fed funds is at you know 50 basis points or something. So I would assume that if the two-year yield got below 2.75, that is just the biggest red flag in the world at this point, considering that how the Fed always wants to keep the market at bay. And if it doesn't, if the two-year yield just goes there by itself and doesn't change, there's your there's your red flag of a credit event happening that the Fed is behind the curve then. 
Yeah, assuming that the the ten year is 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 above it. It's, yeah, that that. Would, yeah, usually when the stuff hits the fan, like if I go back to this chart of, uh, I think we had the the inversion chart up here. Yeah, here we go. So if we look at this inversion chart, you can see that the that uh, you know we get the recession after the curve is no longer inverted. Uh, but I'd like to point out that every single time that you see that, uh, or almost every single time, I think there might have been an exception in the. Uh, 70s. It's due to that bull steepener, which makes sense because when you look at Fed funds, uh, you see that once uh, the Fed starts dropping rates, uh, and that's usually due to the dynamics that we were just talking about, that's when you have the, the stuff hitting the fan. So that's another key component is you look at that two-year, that 10-year, and you wait for the Fed to start dropping. And once the Fed starts dropping, you know that's the signal that it, it's it's time to be risk-off right there. It's time to be um, you know, very, that's, very, that's, uh, that's the behind the curve theory mind. that the fed is traditionally old and slow. And by the time that they realize that the two year old won't listen to them, uh, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a theory that's just based on history. And therefore, if it's happened, let's say 90% of the time, I would say that the probability of that happening through the next cycle, which, you know, we both agree that the fed hasn't eliminated the business cycle, uh, that it's likely to play out the same way. Okay. I think in that regards, we would agree on the two-year yield then. Yeah, for sure. So I think uh, maybe just where we see things different is uh, I I start with a macro view. And if that macro view tells me that the probability of this credit event or recession is very high, I uh, overlay that with my real estate view. And I think what maybe a lot of people do in the real estate market is they take the opposite approach uh, but if they're not fully understanding uh, the dynamics that are at play at macro, then th I think they have a hard time assessing those probabilities. I'm always a macro cycle person first, and then a credit market, obviously, just for real estate and just the backdrop. So again, I I, I need to see more deterioration before I get to that. But the two-year yield to me is, it, people that especially follow my work recently, I've said the two-year yield at this point is actually more important than the 10-year yield. That yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would argue that it's the interplay between the two, but uh, we're, we're we're saying similar things. So, uh, Logan, I know I, I've kept you an hour, buddy. I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, thanks for being my pleasure. It was a good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always say whenever I do these debates, at the very least, regardless of of who you think won or lost or any of that stuff, it's it's all about just getting people thinking and thinking about these complex topics. And the more they do, I think the better. Uh, everyone is for it. Yes. So do you want to go ahead and tell people where they can find uh, your website and maybe follow you on Twitter? Uh, just my name, Logan Motoshami on Twitter. Uh, people know uh, my my fun on that side. Uh, also uh, work for Housing Wire. We have a top 10 business podcast, Housing Wire Daily. We talk about real estate and economic data twice a week. Uh, if you like to get bored with video charts, Instagram, my name, we go over all the data each day. Um, so again, my job is connect the dots to get to one stage to the other and macroeconomic cycle work is actually my primary thing housing secondary and then we try to correlate all the things together so it is a bit nerdy it's not as fun i understand i would say economic my audience cycle. loves yeah so uh in, in that regard if you're interested in that it's just a, a a different kind of view on how the economic cycle works tied to the housing market awesome logan appreciate your time can't wait to Pleasure. Do it again, buddy. have a wonderful day bye